Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi folks, this is Dr. Robin. Hi y'all, this is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Hey, Pastor. Hey, Dr. Robin. What is going on in the world? Oh, my gosh. I have so much to tell you. You do? I do. I mean, I've already told you on text and you got a little freaked out, but now that we're on FaceTime and you can see my hair, how do I look? You look amazing. You got oh your God. COVID yes. cut. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and let me tell you, it was like a bushel of hair. I, I, I know it. I mean, you see mine. I yeah. am like, I am like living my 1980s Debbie Gibson, Belinda yes. Carlisle, Cindy um, Lauper, like Cindy Lauper yeah. rocker look. Like yeah. my hair, I, I've got all my natural curl out. I'm just letting it like, it's, it's crazy. You let it all hang out as they say. It's crazy. Man, this hair thing is no joke. I know no a lot joke. of our friends have yeah. been either just defying orders and saying, you know what, screw it. I'm not going to cut my hair and you guys are just going to have to live with the real me. Um, and others are letting their family members do it. Um, I have dear friends in New Orleans whose wife, his wife cut his hair the first time and it went very well. Uh-huh. Um, the second time she went to cut his hair, she forgot to put the guard on. Oh, no. And he has a chunk in the back of his head that literally is naked. Oh, my gosh. Um, and they posted pictures of it online. And she was very embarrassed. And she oh felt really horrible. Um, but the rest of us, of course, got a really big laugh out of yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I um, one of my colleagues who teaches at Princeton said on Facebook, because his wife was cutting his hair, he said this. I'm sure that cutting hair in quarantine is part of the vows. And I'm like, <laughs> yes. But I don't like, know. Like, there there are just some things I would not trust my husband with. Well, I mean, so just, same here. I mean, I don't have a husband, but you know what I mean. True. Um, I'm not looking for a husband either, so don't, don't come and knock Also nothing. true. <laughs> but, um, I, you know, my hair is so much part of my identity, and it was getting so bushy. Right. But now it looks good. It does. Yeah. Okay. You feel a little bit more like yourself. I do. I don't feel okay, so um, wild, like a like a like I'm living in the wilderness or something, which I kind of am in South Nashville. So I was feeling really bushy and shaggy. Well, I mean, I get it. Like you are my own personal John the Baptist. Does that mean I need to eat locust and honey? No, no. Just get just get in the just get in the river. And make some ma- and make some magic. <laughs> we do we do have a little crick out here. You have a crick. I yeah. love I love the Arkansas that just came out in you. <laughs> you said crick just like I say crick, and nobody else in the world is going to be like, "What's a crick?" Right. For y'all, it's a creek. Yeah. A creek. Yeah. Um, speaking of speaking of people who um, talk way more polished than us. Um, we're really excited about what's about to happen. Uh, so oh, it's about to happen. Oh, it's about to happen, y'all. Um, uh, I have uh, been a friend of John Pavlovitz for several years now. Um, I think he would also say that he's been a friend of mine. Uh, you all may know John from his blog writing. Um, John has a website um, called... Uh, things that there's stuff that needs to be said. And he, he really made his way into the public sphere around 2014 when he posted a blog post that went kind of all over the world titled, If I Have Gay Children. Mm. Um, and it outlined kind of the ways that he would continue to love and support his kids if they ever came out. 
and that he, you know, wouldn't secretly hope that they would change. Um, as a pastor, uh, that blog, as as many of you might might uh, assume, um, you know, was was challenging for folks. Yeah. Um, and ever since, I mean, John was writing long before that, and John was saying important things long before that. But that's really the 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 uh, piece of his writing that that changed a lot of his of his world. Uh, he has now put um, several books into the world. He wrote A Bigger Table. He wrote Hope and Other Superpowers. Um, he also has an Advent devotional called Low. Um, but we are happy to welcome him today because John most recently has been uh, known for being very honest and truthful about his perspective around the presidency in the United States about the challenges that he sees as a Christian man and, and what's happening in our White House and what's happening in the world. Um, we are going to talk to him about a whole host of things, but I want to remind you, um, there are times, friends, where we um, will invite people into this space of great privilege, specifically cis, straight, white men. Um, John identifies as that. When we do this, we acknowledge that this type of invitation can seem problematic to some of you. We want you to know that we recognize this. We're very intentional about these invitations. We do so only when the space that these persons occupy in the world hold a necessary conversation that we feel like we need to be having. Um, we intend to ask these guests, how they personally are divesting of their own privilege and the patriarchy within their own lives and the organizations where we find them, where they find themselves. Um, but we want you to know that we recognize that it's important for us to name this privilege and to name the way that we're inviting people like this into our space. And if you have challenges or anything that you want to talk with us about, regarding those invitations, please, please reach out to us. Um, you can find us on all the socials and you know that we'll engage with you thoughtfully um, and intentionally about that. Without further ado, we would like to introduce all of you to John Pavlovitz. Hello, hello. How the heck are you? Uh, I am doing so much better now that I can uh, speak with the two of you. I'm just so grateful to be here, really. Yeah, we're very excited. Yeah, we are excited. We are excited. Can we begin, you know, your your conversation about hair is really sort of dear to my heart because <laughs> I, I started early in this, you know, this sort of shutdown process. I started watching YouTube videos about cutting your own hair and I got sort of obsessed and I ordered this beautiful set of clippers and <laughs> I, I went ahead, I kind of shut the bathroom door and said to my family, all right, I'll see you in a couple hours. This could take a while. And it did. But Three or four days later, one of my readers said, I'm really upset with you. And I said, why? And she said, well, because it's obvious that you just got a nice, clean, beautiful haircut, so you must be going out. And I said, well, you're, <laughs> thank you. I'm honored by your kudos that you gave me without even knowing. So, <laughs> yeah. You, that, was, that was a talent you didn't know you had, friend. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, it's just we're just finding out all sorts of things about ourselves right now, aren't we? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and and I, I'm sure that she was also partially a little jealous that she wasn't going to get to see those long Italian locks that were <laughs> about to, you know, to spring forth from your from yeah, your head, sure, sure. you know, in 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 quarantine land. <laughs> yeah, the '80s are not coming back. No, <laughs> they aren't. No. I wish. I mean, some of us have seen that. Uh, uh, that poison striper yeah. photograph where you are um, you are living your best hairband life. Um, yeah, y'all want to find that on the internet? Just <laughs> just do a search or or send, or send me a message. I'll be happy to share it with you. <laughs> yeah, my fourteen year old said, "Are you going to grow it out again?" I said, uh, "I don't think that's going to be working anymore. That's <laughs> yeah. just, you, yeah. ha you have to know when the the horse is dead. Right. You have to dismount. dismount. Right." <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, John, we we're as we've said, we're we're happy you're with us. Um, it's important. It's important to both Robin and I. I think that we highlight voices that are saying hard things right now in the world. Um, you know, we've done. I mean, neither one of us has ever been known to be shy about speaking our truth into into the the echo chamber 
of the world. But there comes a point where, you know, folks listen to you and then there comes a point where folks turn you off. Um, you have carved out this kind of interesting space in in social media and through your blog uh, where you're really finding a way to kind of voice the things I think that a lot of those of us that that identify as Christian um, and as you know residents of the United States are longing to say but don't necessarily have the language with which to say it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, you, you can start kind of as far back in your journey as you want, um, but how, how do you think you landed kind of where you find yourself today? Well, I think part of it happened, Anna, being uh, a pastor in the local church for decades, but uh, largely many of those churches, large white churches in the South, and there was sort of a tension in my life in ministry, kind of the further I walked in to that role and into that place of ministry and realized not only um, the the restraints on me uh, on speaking sort of from an authentic place, but also the, the sort of system that I was um, now a part of. And really, there were so many places of discomfort along the way. And sometimes you you face those and sometimes you rationalize them away. And for me, it became there. There was a choice that I started to feel like I could either be authentic or employed in certain situations. <laughs> Do you know? Yeah, and, and and so you you make the one choice for a while, but then you come to a place where you say, "I'm not wasting any more time here." And and for me, you know, that happened probably about ten years ago when I realized, okay, there is a. I'd been writing the blog for a while, like you said, and. Um, I remember getting to a place when the Sandy Hook shooting happened, because up until that point, I had been sort of censoring my language and editing it to make it palatable yeah. for you know church folks. And then finally, I, I wrote something that day that was really a visceral response, and I wasn't thinking about the trouble I could get into. And that reached a whole new audience. And then I realized, okay, you've you've got a responsibility to speak explicitly into what you're seeing and experiencing. And I started a, a long process, which is really where I am today in that I, I, I call it a, being a war correspondent so that I, you know, I get to travel into new communities all the time and I get with people and I get in sort of the trenches of their lives. And I say, tell me what's happening here on the ground so I can tell the folks back home kind of thing. And I just try to be a story learner and, and then report, you know, kind of synthesize what people are telling me and then share those stories so that other people can begin to have an insight that maybe they didn't have or get new questions. Mm. Mm. I love that. John, I'm curious how, how you even came to have this awareness about yourself. You know, what was, I mean, I hear that it was the Sandy hook um, shooting, but was there something else that happened? Well, it, it was sort of a cumulative process, but being being in a church in the South and uh, this, this sort of massive uh, Methodist church, a couple, you know, there were a few times when you just sort of, your eyes open. So for one, one example was, you know, being a pastor in youth ministry and teenagers, you have sort of a proximity to them that adults in adult ministry don't have, right? So I'm with teenagers, and they're sharing their stories. And um, I started to try to make a space where LGBTQ teens could really feel like they were, they were seen and heard and loved and with no desire to fix or change or save or renovate them. And right. when that started to happen, you know, students started coming out to me uh, publicly and then privately. And I can remember sort of being called into the the principal's office or the pastor's office. And um, he, he said to me, you know, John, I've been noticing that uh, we have a lot of gay kids in our youth group. And I said, well, you know, we don't have more per capita LGBTQ <laughs> students. They just, they just realize that they're loved. Yeah. And I couldn't even be really explicit at the time. Yeah. Uh, and I remember having this conversation with this pastor and it got really sort of uncomfortable. And I said, so tell me, what, what do you want me to tell these students? 
that I'm not telling them. What do you want me to say if a if a student comes out to me and he he really had no answer? All he could say was, "Well, I just think it's not God's best for yeah. them." And it was sort of at that conversation I said, "Okay, denying the most authentic parts of who you are is not God's best for anyone. So I'm not going to try to be a part of that. I'm going to be try try to create a space where people can." be free. And so that's just kind of part part of the road that I that I started on, you know, maybe 12, 15 years ago. Wow. wow. I mean, as a trans and queer person, I appreciate um, I appreciate that work uh, because the church has not been a safe place for a lot of my siblings. And um, we need more people like you who will take risks you know, and eventually I entered the coveted uh, space that, that John found himself in a few years later of being, you know, fired from the United right. Methodist right. Church. You were, you were, you were released. <laughs> was, yeah, yeah. That's, that's one way they could say it. <laughs> so, John, is, is how has – so your, your voice started um, – and maybe that maybe this is my own impression of of your writing, but I, I feel I feel like I'm I'm correct in this. Your voice started tackling social concerns that tied loosely into political contexts, and has in many ways kind of turned itself on its head. Uh, since 2016 and the election of Donald Trump, where the, your writing is much more now so political um, and and ties back to, you know, the, the social arc. Do, do you see that? At, did, is, is that a fair representation of, of what you think has happened over the last four years? Or would you define it differently? No, I think it's very accurate. I think what if you look back on my writing in the blog, let's say from three years before the If I Have Gay Children blog post, and you look at said, what is he writing about sexuality? You would have seen how I couched things and the sort of generalities that I, you know, the lines that I couldn't cross because I was a pastor. And I think what I found that that happened. So if you, you know, if you look back on my writing pre- uh, 2016 presidential campaign, I never mentioned a political party or a politician. And it really only, you know, started during that time when I saw this sort of full scale evangelical soul selling that I said, okay, if I'm going to be explicit about all these things, I've got to name what's happening here. And I remember a good friend said, okay, you better not do this because you're going to alienate half of your, your potential audience. And I said, if that's why I'm doing this, then I have a real problem. And so I, I remember writing the first post where I sort of attacked the, the idea of Trumpism and, you know, and the blowback came. And then I said, but that's OK, because the story always has been authenticity will sever certain relationships, but it will yield other relationships that you're not even aware of at the time. And so often I see ministers and they sacrifice the possible people who they may reach or help or or partner with because they're trying to retain the relationships that they have that may not be healthy. Yeah. Mm. What's been the biggest surprise for you since you started writing in in that way or being more um truth being more of a truth teller in, in that way? The, the surprise has probably been the number of people in the churches where I had served or elsewhere who are asking all these questions or, or having the same tensions, but they, they don't have a way to express them. They don't have a place to safely process. And what I found was, you know, the words that I would put out there became sort of an invitation for other people to say, okay, here's a pastor saying this. Here's a white cisgender heterosexual pastor saying this. So let's talk about it. And I found that, you know, there are so many people in organized Christianity who have so many misgivings and so many points of tension, but the, the communities themselves and the pastors themselves are not making space to actually have honest conversation about it. And what all. do you think that's about? Is that about they don't want to disrupt their their privileges that they have right now? Or, or what is it? it? Yeah, it's a self-preservation thing largely. And I think also that you – 
you know, the a, a pastor's position is highly political. Right. People don't, many don't realize that you enter the right. space and you may have these ambitions and these, these passions, these things that motivate you to begin. But once you're in that world, you see the, the forces that are pulling right. on you, even the idea of, you know, I mean, health insurance, it's a seductive right. thing or a salary. And right. so, so it's partly that. And then the other part is you, you get involved in a local community and you do genuinely love yeah. these people. And so the balance becomes, when do I become beholden to those people as opposed to when am I sharing life with them? And that's a really hard balance because when I entered a small group, for example, or I entered a space, I was John the pastor. I was not just John, brother and sister right. in Christ. You know, I wasn't, fam I wasn't family. I was in an elevated right. place, not in, my, not in my mind, but that's, you know, I was in, um, I was in Philadelphia a couple of years ago and I'm talking to this Methodist pastor of this really large progressive Methodist church. And I was trying to warn him about what I was going to, you know, preach on that Sunday because I, I don't want to drop a bomb on a local congregation and leave. That's usually not how I do that on the blog. And so I said, here's what I'm going to talk about. Are you comfortable with that? And he said, oh, please, please, because I can't. I want to say this, mm. but I can't. That happens to me all the time. Yep. And I say, yeah, I said, you could. You just might end up out here right. with me. And so right. that's, that's the thing that freed me because uh, I wanted to – be a part of those communities. But the minute that I was uh, sort of released from that obligation, then I said, well, what do I really want to say without filter? And that's sort of the space I began to work from. And I started to say, if I'm going to ever go back to being a local pastor, it's going to be in a different capacity. I'm going to have a different mindset. I'm going to have to, um, they're going to have to receive me what they already right. know about me. Um, so, yeah. One of the things that Anna and I talk about on this podcast is bridging together analysis and activism. And I'm really curious um, how you how you developed your analysis around the things that are harming so many people. Well, I mean, much of that comes from being a curious person. You know, I, I remember, and Anna's probably heard me talk about this, but being a, an art student and being with a a professor and we're, we're drawing a still life. And he says, well, before you do this, I want to talk to you about what you're about to do. He said, you're about to try to be an artist and show people the beauty and the ordinary things that they no longer see beauty in. And he said, the way you do that is you have to become a student of what mm. you draw. You have to really feel everything and investigate it and have proximity to it. Then when you step back, you can capture those things yeah. that people miss. And so being a student of other people, that's kind of what I, what I go through the world trying to do and, and sitting with people and saying, what are they trying to say that they can't say? And so you, you combine that kind of pursuit with just, you know, academic pursuits and filling yourself with different perspectives and different information. And then you sift all that through the lens, in my case, of a faith mm -hmm. in Jesus and say, you know, you're holding up the, the, the life and ministry of Jesus as a mirror to what I'm seeing and learning, which is sort of why, you know, the writing is most pointed and most, most confrontational to the, you know, the white right. evangelical church. Uh, because I feel like that's the place where a lot of this inequity is being manifested around this and around Trumpism. It's sort of coalesced. And that's where so many points of um, disparity are. And so when it comes to Trump, I mean, let's just go there. Um, when it comes to Trump and policy and him as a human being, what are you finding to be the biggest triggers for evangelicals from your writing? Meaning, what is it that what is it that you say about Trump that pisses them off the most? Because I'm curious, you know, like, I mean, there are so many things that are, are just like a dumpster fire. Like, I mean, yeah. like you, you walk into the dumpster and it's like there's 80,000 little fires burning and they were all started by him. But what is it that makes them the maddest of what you say? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, <laughs> I think, you know, what, what you find about Trump is, and I talked about this the other night. We did a live stream about, you know, the sort of MAGA divide. And, I, you know, he Trump didn't create any of the stuff that we care about. These these issues we're passionate about. He just revealed it and he gave it a space to, you know, be unfettered. But I think for me, what 
what really ticks off Trump supporters the most is if they're professed Christians and I give them the words and the life and the ministry and teachings of Jesus and then say, okay, you have to deal with this. And because what we find about Trump supporters who are professed Christians, uh, they will use the idea of God. They'll use that sort of that big agenda <laughs> because they can superimpose anything on God. It's really hard to take the words of the Sermon on the Mount and to screw with those. And so I just keep giving them those words and ideas back to them and say, tell me where you see this in this person or in his policies. And that's when their their knee-jerk reaction comes. That's when the hatred comes, when people, when I think the alarm goes off in them and they're saying, yeah, I've kind of bought into this thing and there's nothing here to hold on to, but I have to hold on to it. I have to make that story be true. And my writing tries to say, that's not the story. That's not an accurate story. So I want to complicate this a little further because while I agree that the GOP writ large has undermined so much in this country, the Democrats are not innocent. And so how do we as people with a conscience and people of faith and people who follow the way of Jesus – how do we actually advocate for good politics and democracy when 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 i go to the voting poll in november it's about choosing the better of two evils well i think yeah uh, what I, we we did um i'm part of a, a group called vote common good and you probably yeah some, you're yeah. familiar with some of the folks involved in that and you know the idea was to travel around the country and speak to you know largely to white evangelicals and to say hey you may have voted this party your whole life but we want you to know that you can actually vote differently and still vote your faith and i think the 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 message there and so the way i feel right now is this is sort of an a pivot point moment in history. There's sort of this unprecedented kind of urgency. And so for me right now, the answer is to vote to protect people from this right. Republican regime, this very specific regime. And that doesn't mean that uh, going forward that the Democratic candidates are going to be the answer or the Democratic Party, because I don't believe that. I believe it's it's sort of a matter of that's a barrier that we have left between us and this sort of you know, yeah. fascist despot. Uh, but but definitely, I think we've got to, there, there is no savior party. There is no savior yeah. administration. And that's not going to happen in November either. Even if we get a, you know, political outcome that we right. sort of feel more comfortable with, all this stuff is still going to be there. And so we're just going to have to get up the next day. The difference might be we don't have the, the pressing urgency of trying to protect ourselves every day from a different threat from that, right. you know, right. that group, but maybe. Yeah. yeah, there's a, there might be a lessening of our of our fear over supremacy culture, <laughs> um, but it's but it certainly hasn't gone away. Yeah, we might be able to take a little bit of a breath. I think that's the toll that the last three years have had is that there's sort of a relentless nature to kind of what we're feeling because you're right. One day it's immigration, the next day it's uh, you know corruption, and the next day it's race, and so we've got we never right. sort of get to breathe. And that takes yeah. a toll on activists, for sure. I do some, I do compassion fatigue workshops because right now caregivers and activists and helpers are just, yeah. they're maxed out. Mm. Are you seeing that it's worse, that that compassion fatigue is worse now that we are in the midst of, of this pandemic? Yeah, I, I, in some ways, I think what it's allowed it's allowed us to do is connect in a different way. So there are people who now I'm able to get time because I'm not traveling and I am sort of focused around, okay, what can I do from here? I'm in that sort of, um, you know, sort of urgency mindset that, okay, I can't do all the stuff I used to do, but I can do this. And so you're finding intentional ways to connect with people. But what I find is so many people are isolated physically from their communities and those may be really rare for them. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that I have people around me, even in my family, who share the things that I'm passionate about. And right now I'm talking to so many people. A woman said to me last night, I, I'm married to a Trump supporter and we're in the same two or three rooms. 
I can't that the oppressive nature of that combined with the news of the day is just almost unbearable. And so you kind of see both kind of dynamics working out. Mm, yeah, that's got to be so hard. I mean, can't imagine that I feel so lucky to be partnered with someone who shares the same values. I cannot imagine being my, my family is is a Trump supporter family, and I can't imagine being in that home um, with Fox News on or whatever. But there's been a there's been a shift in my family, the way that Trump has not addressed uh, COVID-19 and the way that he's mismanaged this opportunity. It's been a turning point for my family, and I hope for a lot of other people it's been a turning point. And how interesting is it that that's right. what's been the turning point? Like we, you know, we have had three and a half years of yeah. disaster and misery and minimization of every single entity in this country that you can think of that isn't white yeah. and male and straight. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and yet it's, it's a pandemic that, that, that is the thing that's, that's the straw yeah. that's broken yeah. the, the camel's yeah. back for them. It's so bizarre. Yeah. So maybe a hundred thousand people dying might get you to think about switching your perspective. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe. And, and, maybe. And that's part of, that's part of the story. And I think you see how uh, entrenched, or how entwined uh, Trumpism and the evangelical church is because there's a there's an idea that, okay, I need this story to be true and I'll take all the data and the facts and the information in front of me. I will take reality and I'll deny it because that's going to help right. me retain right. this, the story that I'm a part of. And that's what you see so many people. And I think, you know, Robin, you asked about the, well, you talked about the family dynamic and I talked to so many people that, it's the it's the abject cruelty that people who they love yeah. seem to be embracing. They seem to be amening. It isn't just a difference of opinion on policy. It's actually sort of a malevolent, it's a malice to it. And I think that's the part about it that is just so draining right now for people who are just compassionate by nature. It's uh, It's really tough. John, sometimes we talk about the Enneagram, and I'm very curious if you know what your Enneagram type is. <laughs> Uh, I've been called a lot of things, but I've been told I'm a seven. Uh, my my wife is pretty astute in these areas. <clears throat> I've only done kind of peripheral work around it, but I hear all the time about, oh, that's because you're a seven or ah, seven. So um, <laughs> that's yeah. That's well, as a told. as a fellow as a fellow seven, and as someone who feels as if they. They know you uh -huh. I mean, moderately, moderately well, not, any, you know, as, as intimately well, but uh, yeah, um, I also would agree that you are a seven with an eight wing, well, just like me. <laughs> the, I mean, I mean, the, the reason I asked that is because you bring so much heart to your work. And, and so I'm surprised that you're in the head type as a seven when you're talking about compassion fatigue and being with people um there's a lot of heart to your work and i think that's a big piece of what this work requires when we talk about bridging with radical difference when we talk about dismantling supremacy culture when we talk about transforming the world it requires heart work um and so i'm just surprised that you're a seven But you're sometimes I mean, surprised I'm a seven too. Let's be real. <laughs> John, I'm cur I'm curious about something. If I can, if I can just ask. Um, sure. I, I love that we're in our heads and we're talking about really heady things. But can we talk about strategy for a minute? Like, what is our strategy sure. to create a better world? What what are the what are the things that we need to do to get our hands dirty to create a better world? Well, I, I think when you talk about inequity of any kind, I, I always like to separate systems and stories. You know, I say that we we kind of we we know that these big systems are in place and we have to attack those those institutional things, but we always encounter yeah. those systems through stories. And so I think there's a balance of doing the work, the sort of small and close work, and then sort of these sort of bigger things that we partner with people in doing. So I'm, I'm trying to always balance that to say, okay, am I, 
am I doing work that is attacking the system, uh, but am I also kind of lifting up these stories? Am I, am I still ministering to people? Mm -hmm. Am I still a caregiver? So I think it's a kind of a two-pronged approach all the time, and I try to have a balance sort of in my life and my work and my ministry that, yeah, that addresses both great. of those things. Is it really evident to you when you've missed the mark on that? I think it's all a matter of uh, the, the way you divide your time and you can find or, yourself. Or do you never miss the mark? <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I'm waiting for that to happen. And I just didn't oh, want to. Oh, okay. Start. All right. Okay. But, um, I think what you do is you look, you look, I had a friend say to me, well, it was my therapist. Um, no, <laughs> I always talk about, you know, you can look back a couple of days, maybe a week or a month or the last six months and say, okay, where is my energy gone? Because for me, part of that work, Robin, is to say, I'm going to put some of my energy into fighting this thing, just confronting this reality. And then sometimes I need to put my energy into spending time being with, caring for, partnering with people who are affected yeah. by that reality. So it's the same goal, but it's a very different energy. So sometimes I'm going to be in that fight stance and sometimes I'm in the pastoral right. stance. I think, you know, for me looking at Jesus as the good shepherd, I mean, that's the essence of that, right? He's pastoral yeah. caregiver to the sheep, but to the yeah. wolves, he's the holy opposition and he's the status quo yeah. changer and system influencer. I love what you say about we know that these systems are in place and that institutions are big and overwhelming, but we encounter systems and institutions through story. I love that. Well, and that's for me, that's one of the the capacities that I function in where I, as I travel the country and I document these things and I, I put these stories out there because I try to get people to invite them in. I'm often trying to express the same reality in 30 different ways because I know that there's a person out there. They may only respond to right. doctrine and theology, so I'm going to try to give them scripture. Some people are going to respond by stories of people who are similar to them in some way where they see their commonalities. And so, you know, that way I can write and say, this is not just something that I'm feeling. This is actually a document of this journey. And sometimes those stories are the things that actually make inroads. I can't really, I can't preach someone into compassion. I wish I could. I can't argue them into compassion, but I can give them a story and say, all right, I'm going to give you yeah. a chance to be a human being yeah. in response to that story. Oh, and they have them, they do it. what they're going to do. So one of the questions that we ask a lot on this podcast is, what is breaking your heart today? Um, and, and Robin and I talk about that a lot and, and, you know, I mean, any given day that answer changes, um, for, for us. Um, I wonder today what, what's breaking your heart? America daylight. Um, I think what's breaking, <laughs> what, what's breaking my heart honestly is seeing people who I know and love and respect uh, people I've ministered alongside, people who I've, you know, lived with in my communities who are mm. so motivated by fear that they're allowing themselves to be seduced by this thing that is just so, that has no love for them. And that's, the, I think, the grieving point for me. I, I tell people to move toward the burden, burden, to listen to that burden. And right now my burden is, boy, you don't realize how unloved you are by this human being who you have who you adore and I want better for you. And, uh, you know, even looking at my former yeah. past, a former pastor of mine and seeing something he was posting. And I thought, boy, he just doesn't get it. He doesn't see how, how, um, how much better there is for him. There is a place for him. And so that's, what's breaking my heart. People who are, have mm. forgotten who they are. Mm. Why, why do we, well, hang on one second. Cause I want to, I want to ask, I want to ask a question about that. Why do we think that power and control is the thing that will save us? And I'm and I'm talking specifically for those within organized Christianity who adore Trump. That's the that's the strange thing. You know, you look at someone like Jesus who led from street level and he's yeah. he's there in community with people and 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 why um, white evangelicals, especially, but white, why Christians seek that authoritarian leader 
is something that it's a disconnect that I can't seem to reconcile, which is why I'm always lifting up Jesus, because there's so much to be learned by people who, who seek power. I mean, over and over again, he's explicit. He's saying, you know, if you want to be larger, yeah. that's only going to be toxic for you. You know, power is only going to damage you. And I just think that's where Jesus and the American dream, people want to have both of those things. Right. And it's really Thank almost you. impossible. I think the thing that's breaking my heart today is um, the shooting deaths of Ahmad and Brianna. Mm. And I'm, I'm, I know that you've, you know, recently written um, about Ahmad Arbery shooting and the, the injustice around it. Um, and, and you briefly mentioned, you know, that, that Sandy Hook was kind of what led you into um, kind of this push to be more of your authentic self, or at least to allow your authentic voice to be public. Yeah. Um, how are you navigating this understanding right now that, um, you know, racism is still not just very much alive and well in this country, but is pervasively continuing mm. to murder people who, who, who don't look like, um, white waspy people. Um, how, how are you, how are you, you know, negotiating with that in your own heart right now? Well, the, ch the challenge is, Anna, is to try to confront that without coming across as being perpetually pissed off. And I think that's the, the heart of it is that the, the grief that I feel when I, when I see the reality of what's happening and you're, you're trying to speak into it and, and there's almost like you're trying to shake people alive who are just fall falling asleep. And you look mm -hmm. at something like these shootings, it's important to try to, to tell people, even if this is abhorrent to you that is such a you know a blatant example of dehumanization that yeah that should upset you but you're not even paying attention to anything that's any more right. subtle or nuanced than that and that's the place that mm -hmm. you're always trying to point people to that yeah you don't get points for thinking that someone being executed in the middle of the street is is terrible you should think that's terrible but you should be paying attention to the, the the things that are happening yeah. that aren't going to scream out on a viral video, right. you know, right? Every microaggression that is happening to, you know, non-white people and and you know, white women or or white um, queer people mm -hmm. on a exactly. on, or otherly able people on a daily basis, right? And if that if there's something that you grieve, you know, you grieve the lack of compassion, like I talked about, but you also grieve the the laziness, the intellectual laziness, because when you yes. mention things, people say, I, I, I can't even go there. I don't want to get into the weeds of this. And that was the story for me about just my recognizing my privilege is that you started to realize, okay, this is not just in this one little moment that this has been, uh, that I've seen the um, evidence of this, but now it's really a, a pervasive thing that I have to unravel so much of my life and my story and how I viewed the world. And most people aren't going to want to go through the, the, the work that it takes and the, and the loss that you experience, the grieving of over yeah. what you've been a part of or benefited from. Mm. Yeah. How have you, how have you seen your, how have you seen the divesting of your own privilege manifest itself in, in the most real ways? Well, I, I think it comes down to, you have to keep continually name those things. So many people I know who who may be white and recognize some of these things. I, I read uh, Howard Thurman's book, Jesus and the Disinherited, and it was really mm. important for me to understand that, for example, he was talking about fear and he was saying, you know, essentially to paraphrase that fear is universal, but not all fear is equal because there are buffers to fear. And so as I move through the world, I have to every day wake up and say, okay, what are realities that I'm experiencing solely because of my whiteness or my cisgender heterosexuality or, or my maleness? And you try to be as honest as you can about those things. Um, and so many white people I know, they, they have this sort of guilt, but that guilt really does nothing. The, the guilt right. just paralyzes them. And so for right. me, it's, it's moving, it's moving. The awareness is currency. Well, what do I do with that awareness now? And so tangibly, that means every day waking up and saying, okay, 
what can I learn about the world and about my place in it um, that's going to make me more aware of these things? Um, so you just you try to get up every day and be a learner again. And uh, and that's I have to remember that that's always I tell people there are things I'm going to uncover, but there are some things I'm never going to be able to realize because it's just baked into to my to my life story that I've benefited from in ways I'll never even understand. I'll no one will ever be able to verbalize them to me. If only people would get up every day and ask themselves the same questions that you ask yourself. Well, and you ask other people too. I mean, that's the other part about it. So many, I, I'm fortunate. Mm -hmm. I get people who tell me their stories hundreds of times a week. Most people, they're in the, the sort of box of their their family and their work and and that their social you know circumstance and they don't really have exposure to new information and so that's part of the other you know thing that i try to do is i try to say hey here's something if you're passing by me online here's something that you may not have thought about today um try to do that where you can so is there another book coming there, there is. Um, I don't know what it is. I'm writing it. I started. <laughs> I started writing. You know, I started writing maybe a, two months before this sort of pandemic. Now it's like the diary of a pandemic. I don't know what it is. Um, it's trying, trying to process how you make sense of, of, of God in this disaster. But what this disaster continues to illustrate about the America that you find yourself in. And then a God who is supposedly loved yeah. and how you, so there's, there's a lot stirring right now in the writing. Yeah. I love it. You know, that started out as just saying, you know, what is, <clears throat> what is, is your God is my God has been too small. Most of my life, my God has been, Oh, God is a white cisgender heterosexual man who was born in America, identifies as Christian and votes Republican. And that's yeah. not good enough. So how do you expand love it. your understanding of God? I love it. Imagination. Hmm. Yeah. Great. Exactly. Yes. So if you were to encourage folks to be in touch with you, if you wanted to let them know how to find you, um, what ha what's the best way for them to, to either affirm your voice or to go after you with a pitchfork? Yeah, fine. Well, let me give you um, Anna Galladay. It's Anna. No, uh, so... You know, I, my name is complicated, so it's often difficult, but it's Pavlovitz. And if you know how to spell my name, then you go to, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and you can find me. And honestly, that's the work that I do. You know, I've been a pastor in the local church and that's still my heart. So engaging people who share their stories, whether those stories are complimentary or not, or whether people have, right. you know, are, they're encouraged or challenged. It's, it's all a good thing. So I encourage people to right. reach out to me. Yeah, I kid, I kid, but I also know that, you know, pitchforks are, you know. <laughs> you know what? It's, it's a it's, real thing. Yeah, if you're if you're if you're not angry right, at somebody, exactly. you're really exactly. you know, you're not doing what you're supposed you're, to be doing. You're not doing it right. That's what I say all the time. So, so I'm <laughs> if really, I'm not pissing somebody off. And so we're really doing it right. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm well, getting international some, hate mail. So I'm like, that. oh great. I'm really <laughs> pissing people off. Bravo. <laughs> like, I need an interpreter. That's incredible. Well, folks, um, and so John, anything you want to, anything you want to close with, anything you want to, you know, leave people with before we, before we end this amazing time together? No, I mean, I, for me, whoever's listening, I, I think it's, it's beholden on all of us to get up every day and to say, what's, what mm. kind of person does the world need? And then to go out and be that person. And so follow, follow those bur burdens, follow those uh, places of tension yeah. Because Thank they're you. gonna they're gonna make you a better person. Yes. No. Well, friends, you should definitely check out John's writings. Um, I'll also tell you he has a really fun Etsy shop where he sells um, shirts and tanks and all kinds of magnets and all kinds of things with some of his um, most prolific sayings on it. Um, as a fellow, you know, t-shirt maker in the world, wow. I'm a fan of I'm a fan of Pavlovitz design. Um, wow. But you all, um, you all should definitely check out check out John's work and and become yes. engaged with the words that he's that he's putting out into the world. Um, 
Robin, this is Robin. This has been a great. I one. feel like we're finally talking to a white man who gets it. One for the ages. I mean, we have talked to other white men who get it, but like, right? You know, oh, thank you. Yeah, but but we have not to minimize them, but it's hard. No, I mean that's. But uh, you do. know, um, a guy who's been in the local church who who left the comfort of the local church to deal with the public square um, is is inspiring and it's and it's what it's i think it's what all white folks should be doing there so yes yes well thank you thank you both thanks for being with us john friends we are glad you were here uh we hope that you take a listen and and head back if you missed last week's episode you want to back up because as a reminder last week we were able to share with shane claiborne and Um, Lisa Sharon Harper regarding kind of queerness in the church and why we even need to still be having those conversations. So back up to that episode if you haven't listened to it yet. Um, We are always around on the socials. Don't forget to find us and like us and engage with us. We're at Activist Theology. Don't forget that activist and theology share a T. We'd love to hear what you think. And until then, Figure out how you're going to go out in the world and get your hands dirty. That's right. Um, the world will not change unless you are a part of changing it. That's and right. Let's get free. We're, we're glad that you're in this work with us. That's right. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds.